We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. See if you recognize any of these names. Are you ready? Stolen. Bunuelos. Crendel. Bobalki. Panatona. Rosca de Reyes. Cristapsomo. Kozanakunuka. Vanoka. Oh, that's a, that's, that sounds like a smorgasbord of strange <laughs> names from around the world. If you thought that, you were right. But these are the names of traditional Christmas breads from all over the world. Traditional Christmas breads. Places like Germany and Russia and Bolivia and Italy and Greece. Now, maybe you've tasted, right, some of these breads. Panatona is a, you can get that in that like little, right, trapezoidal box or whatever. It's that Italian Christmas bread. Uh, maybe you've had that. Maybe you've had some of these other ones. I don't know. Whether you have or have not, God is pointing us this morning to a far better Christmas bread than any of these, no matter how well they are baked, no matter how expertly they are created. God is pointing us to something far better, a Christmas bread that he has given us. So let's consider how he's doing that by looking together at Exodus 16. It may seem like a very strange place to start in talking about Christmas bread on Christmas morning. But as you, as we look at verses 1 through 4 of Exodus chapter 16, uh, you'll recognize that this was one of our Bible reading passages from our reading plan this last week. And to set the context a bit, we know that it takes place post-Exodus, doesn't it? It takes place post-Exodus. That is, the Hebrews who had been slaves to the Egyptians were now liberated from their shackles. They had been set free at this point in the story, right? By the ten, as a result of the ten plagues that God had poured out spectacularly upon Egypt. So here at this point in the story, Moses is leading them across the desert. These newly emancipated Hebrews, they are traveling across the desert to Mount Sinai. You may recall what God had told Moses way back in chapter 3 of this book. He was speaking to him there, as you'll remember, from a burning bush. And he said, Moses, this shall be a sign for you. It'll be a sign that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So here it's coming to pass. Moses is moving back towards that mountain where he first met God, where he first heard from God. But as this huge company of emancipated Israelites, apparently hundreds of thousands of people are moving through the desert, listen to the challenges they face. Not surprisingly. Starting in 16.1, they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness, that is the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, there in that desert, complaining, grumbling against them. And the people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord, then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. That I may test them. Whether they will walk in my law or not. So, let's stop there. After weeks traveling through the desert, this massive group of people is faced with, surprise, surprise, dwindling supplies, and they are faced with the reality of desert scarcity. But in spite of their grumbling, look at how God graciously and miraculously meets their desperate need. And in such a place as this, he meets their desperate need. In fact, this morning, I'd like us to think carefully, not just about this passage, the details here, but what this passage reveals, not just about the need or the provision, but more importantly, about the provider. What are we learning here about God through this account, through this story, through this episode? What are we learning about the provider, about this God, a God who has and does and will miraculously meet the needs of his redeemed people? Amen. That is your God. This God is your God. So let's do this. Let's think first about what we might call God's desert bread. And then after that, we'll move to the New Testament and we'll talk about God's Christmas bread. Sound good? So as we look back at this passage, Exodus 16, consider what we learn here about, take a look, God's desert bread. Notice how in verse 3, the people's hunger drives their thoughts back to Egypt's. What are they thinking about? Well, they're thinking about what they used to enjoy in terms of food, the meat and the bread that they ate on a regular basis, even though they were slaves. What is God's response to this? Verse four, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Bread from heaven, right? What does that think? There was a, a, a animated feature many years back called cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Do you remember that? And I'm sure at some point in that movie, there was actual bread falling out of the sky, like loaves of bread, maybe by the slice, maybe by the baguette. I don't know, right? But it was raining down, coming down from the sky. Is that what this means here? Well, no. Look at verses 13 and 14 of this same chapter. We read there, verses 13 and 14, that in the morning, dew lay around the camp. That's not strange, is it? Dew on the ground, even in the desert, that happens. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, on the desert floor, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Wow, this is it. This is the bread that God had promised them. This bread that miraculously appeared, according to verse 35, every morning for how long? Verse 35, Every morning for 40 years 
until the people were ready to enter into the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to their ancestors. It says until a habitable place, right, where they would live, they could farm, they could take care of themselves that way. But in the desert here, every single day, no matter what was happening, no matter the people's spiritual condition, God was feeding them. Every day. Every single day. Verse 31 tells us what they called this bread. They called it manna. Which seems to mean, it seems to mean, what is it? <laughs> it's the same question they're asking in verse 15. Manna, right? This is the Hebrew equivalent to the whatchamacallit candy that Hershey put out in 1978. What do you call it? Whatchamacallit. What do you call it? Whatchamacallit. Manna, 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 right? That's what this is. That's what we have here. Manna. In Psalm 78, do you remember Psalm 78? We looked at it just last week where we were talking about telling the next generation, recounting to the next generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, making sure that they know. That's Psalm 78. So here in this Psalm, Asaph tells, Asaph tells us about God's provision of desert bread. I love how he describes it. Yet he commanded, take a look at the screen, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man, man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Wow. Some poetry there, right? That poetic language there, but beautiful. Talk about miraculous provision. Can you imagine this going out and finding this all over the ground every single day? Bread from heaven. Its origin was from the God of heaven giving it to his people. This same God who allowed the people to plunder the Egyptians as they left that nation. And that word is used very specifically, plunder. It's supposed to emphasize the victory that they had without even bearing a sword. Right? Without even brandishing a weapon because God gave them the victory. Because God was the victor. And as a result, they were able to plunder the Egyptians and came out with all of these supplies and all these good things, including the finest gold and all the things that God would eventually have them use to construct the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the holy articles that they would use in their worship. Well, as they've come out, this same God who allowed them to plunder the Egyptians was now providing food for them out of nothing. Nothing. Right? They're not taking it from anyone else. It's being provided for them out of nothing. Enough food for every person every single day in the middle of one of the harshest deserts in the world. This heavenly bread just appeared every morning on the ground. But there's more. Look at this. Remember their, remember their uh, nostalgic uh, remembrances of their time in Egypt? Uh, they talked about sitting by the meat pots and having bread to the full. God's spoken about bread, but he also provides that meat for them. This is what we see in verse 13. He provides this meat in the form of quail that verse 13 came up and covered the camp in the evening. So every evening they had quail too to be able to eat. All of this is an amazing testimony of the God who gives 
What better day than Christmas morning to be able to think about the giver of all good gifts, the God who gives to us so wonderfully. What a testimony that the God who freed them would also feed them. If he frees you, he feeds you. That's the kind of God that he is. He didn't powerfully deliver them into the desert in order to desert them, did he? No, this bread from heaven was another picture, another uh, expression, manifestation of his incredible power. It was meant to show them that God was with them. He was still with them. Even in the middle of nowhere, he is still with them. Now, with that in mind, this morning, I also want us to consider number two. Take a look. Number two, God's Christmas bread. God's desert bread, now God's Christmas bread. This miraculous provision of bread from Exodus 16 should lead us to think about a similar instance that took place over well over a thousand years later. Turn over to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, another passage from your Bible reading plan this past week. John chapter 6. Now, in verses 1 through 14 of John chapter 6, Jesus takes a little boy's lunchbox, and guess what he does? He uses it to feed 5,000 men and an unknown number of women and children as well. From one little boy's lunchbox. This miraculous provision was so stunning. And the people picked up on this. They understood it. It's so stunning that the crowd declares in verse 14. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. What prophet are they referring to there? They're referring to the prophet that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. You see, this isn't lost on the people. They understand that this miraculous provision of bread points back to Moses. It triggers in their mind the idea that God would, as Moses said, raise up a prophet like me. And what are they seeing here? Miraculous provision of bread in the middle of nowhere. They were in the middle of nowhere, right? They couldn't go. They were too far away from any of the towns. That's what the apostles would say in other accounts of this. So it's clear that this crowd has Moses on their mind because as they pursue Jesus and they go after him, they're seeking another sign from Jesus. And this is what the crowd tells Jesus in verses 31 through 33 of John chapter 6. Take a look. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Hey, that's our passage. There's Exodus 16. So now we've got a great bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament built around this idea of the manna in the wilderness. The crowd tells Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Quoting Nehemiah 9. Just using that language today. This is what happened to our people. Jesus knows this. Jesus then said to them, in response to the manna, whole manna argument, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Stop thinking about Moses. He's just a man, just a vessel. It was God. It was Yahweh working through him. 
Right. It was the father who gave you my father gave you that bread. But he says this. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you. See the verb tense change there. Not just gave gives gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Whoa. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in his response? He first shifts their focus from Moses to God. He then shifts their focus from the past to the present. Right? The God who gave is now the God who gives. And then he points into the fact that the miraculous manna that we just studied about in Exodus 16, that the grain of heaven, Psalm 78, the bread of angels, wasn't even the true bread from heaven. As stunning, as amazing, as foundational it was to the origin story of the Israelite people, that nation. Jesus burst their bubble. Guys, it wasn't Moses, it was God. Don't think about what he gave, think about what he gives now. And guess what? That wasn't even the true bread from heaven. Their mind's blown. They're thinking, what's going on here? What is he talking about? That's not the true bread from heaven. How can Jesus say this? Because the true bread of heaven, the bread of God, is not a what, as in, what is it? Manna. Manna, right? What is it? It's not that. It's a who. The one who is the true bread will not only provide sustenance for a group of Hebrews in the desert. He will amazingly wonderfully provide life for the whole world. Again, look at how Jesus is ratcheting things up. He said, you think you were, you're impressed by that story? Oh, I got something for you. I got something even better for you than that. Who is this bread? Jesus is explicit in verse 35. Drop down. Verse 35. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and who believe, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Jesus was a man, not a loaf of bread, right? He wasn't a walking loaf of bread. So what exactly does he mean that he is the bread of life? Good thing for us, verse 51, he explains what he's talking about. Look at verse 51. He says in that last phrase, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, now we see that he's using this, this imagery, isn't he? He's using this analogical language to help us understand he's the bread of life. He's talking about his, his flesh. What, is he, what does he mean though? Jesus isn't bread, but he's like bread. That's what he means. He's not bread, but he's like bread. How is he like bread? Because he provides nourishment. Not for our physical sustenance, but for our spiritual hunger. And he provided that nourishment by giving his flesh over to suffering and death. He gave it over that it was, that it would be torn. That it would be destroyed. His own flesh. On a criminal's cross. That's how he provides nourishment. To us. 
spiritual nourishment. As miraculous as manna was, and I don't want to take away from it, it was an amazing feat. Hopefully one day in eternity, we can kind of do a, 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 a go back and kind of see if, you know, God's heavenly perspective, all the things that took place. And I'd love to see that manna, touch it and feel it and see what it was like, you know, taste it and go, wow, this is amazing. Do you remember, as a side note, they kept a little bit of manna in a jar for generations inside the Ark of the Covenant that eventually was in the Temple of Solomon. That manna for hundreds of years was in that jar as a testimony. It said that the people might see and remember. So I don't know if the priest took it out every once in a while and said, aha, manna, and they're like, what is it? Manna, 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 right? They, they did that. Who knows? I don't know exactly, but he wanted them to hold on to that as a testimony. As miraculous as that manna was, what Jesus gives us is far, 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 far better. Christ himself explains this in John chapter 6. Look at verses, look at verse 49. Your fathers, says Jesus Christ to the Jews listening to him, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and guess what? They died. They ate it. So big deal. They ate it. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, says Jesus, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Brothers and sisters, friends, please don't miss the repeated phrase here. Actually, it's found seven times in this one chapter, never again. Seven times it's repeated in this chapter. Who is Jesus? He is the one that comes down from heaven. Now, I was sure that this was found somewhere else in the Gospel of John. It's not. It's only in this chapter. Seven times, though. Jesus is the one who comes down from heaven. What are we celebrating today with our brothers and sisters all around the world? We're celebrating the fact that he came down from heaven, aren't we? That Christ came down from heaven to, to, to be with us as one of us. God's desert bread was an amazing example of his miraculous provision, but Jesus Christ. God's Christmas bread is the ultimate meaning of manna and far more wondrous, just as Jesus is far greater than Moses. In fact, John expressed this very point in the opening chapter of this gospel, John chapter 1. Take a look at the screen. For the law was given through Moses, says John. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. How beautiful God's Christmas bread bringing us grace and truth. Now, in light of both of these passages, this is kind of like, oh, wow, that's cool. I love the connection. I love to see the fullness of it. That's really neat. Christ, you know, bringing the fullness, the meaning that was there in the Old Testament, filling to overflowing, like Jesus said. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So theologically, biblically, really interesting, really powerful stuff. Here's the problem, though. Consider what our heavenly provider is revealing to us in light of your sense of 
neediness this morning. Ultimately, in terms of spiritual significance, this passage will fall flat in your ears and in your heart if you have no sense of need or what we might call spiritual hunger. You better believe those Hebrews wandering around in the Sinai desert knew that they were hungry. They felt it every day. And they had to keep walking, keep going. God's question to us is, do you feel your spiritual hunger this morning? Many of us don't. We feel, right? We feel content. We feel spiritually fat and sassy. We're just kind of here and we're like, yeah, I got you. Yeah, I'm needy. Yeah, I'm needy sinner. Let me check that off. Yep, yep, I believe that. It's part of the doctrinal statement here. I believe I'm a needy sinner. But look what God has also provided here for us. He's provided in Exodus 16 and John chapter 6. He's provided pictures. He's provided reminders of our need. Far greater than the Hebrews' physical hunger was their spiritual lack. Even in Exodus 16. And that's evident from that passage. And many other passages in Exodus, as well as in the book of Numbers, we see this spiritual need. We see this spiritual lack. Here are the two glaring examples from Exodus 16. First of all, though they had heard God's good intentions through Moses in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, they had heard God's good intentions for them as a people based on his promises, and they had seen God's power at work in amazing ways, incomparable ways for to accomplish their rescue, their liberation, their deliverance. They completely doubted his power and intentions when things got difficult. Do you see that? And so what did they do? Verse 2, Exodus 16. They grumbled. They complained. You better believe complaining is a barometer of your spiritual condition. It indicates what you think about God. The more you complain, the more you gripe and grumble in your life. The more you evidence that kind of discontent. The deeper you are in that place of doubt in terms of God. What he has revealed. This shouldn't sound strange to us, right? Having known the intentions, the good intentions and power of God, having experienced it, when things get difficult to shift into a, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust your intentions and your power. Second, in Exodus 16, we see another picture here. Even though these people had suffered so horribly under the Egyptians, They want to revise the story of their slavery in verse 3. And what do they focus on? They focus on the little they had rather than everything that was taken from them. Little bright spot about meat and bread. And that becomes the main idea rather than years and years of bondage and the killing, the murder of their little boys. So when things got hard, they minimized their bondage. They look back with a romanticized idea of what it meant to be enslaved. Brothers and sisters, this this shouldn't sound strange to us. 
And we could add this. Remember God told them in verse 4 that he was testing them with the manna, see whether they would walk in his laws or not. Guess what? Exodus 16, verses 20 and 28 tells us they were failing that test. (laughs) They were failing that test. They struggled even to obey even the simplest commands. And as the narrative continues, the grumbling gets worse. And the revisionist history worsens. And the failures to obey God multiply. From Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy, it just goes downhill. And think about the crowd. If we shift back over to our second passage in John chapter 6. Think about the crowd who pursued Jesus. Yay, right, that's what we want to do, pursue Jesus Christ. But they pursued Him after eating this miraculous meal in John chapter 6. And Jesus, talking about their pursuit of Him, He chastised them in John 6.26. Take a look on the screen. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Like their ancestors, they were so earthly minded that they minimized the heavenly treasure that God had revealed to them. They wanted full stomachs. God wanted them to have full hearts. They only wanted food in order to see another day. God wanted to give them nourishment for eternal life. Makes me think of C.S. Lewis, right? Little boy in the slums making mud pies. So content with that because he can't imagine a vacation at the beach at the seaside. Their perspective is so limited here. But again, we should recognize this, shouldn't we? We should recognize this behavior. This is the evidence. These are the hunger pains of our spiritual starvation. As sinners. Right? This is why the the promise of God's provision of bread should be so meaningful to us. Because we recognize this. Brothers and sisters, friends, listen. This Christmas, please know this. Take a look on the screen. You cannot appreciate the goodness and greatness of God's gifts unless you truly understand the ugliness and pervasiveness of your desperate need. That's when it will take place. That's when you will see. Yes, Jesus speaks in John 6 about provision in light of your physical death. He talks about that. He feeds them physically. He's thinking of the resurrection. But he's also talking there in light of the spiritual death that blinds all of us and binds all of us in a slavery that's far worse than the Hebrews ever experienced on the Egyptians. That's what we've suffered under. Maybe some of us still today. So when you read Exodus 16, I believe God wants you to be pleasantly stunned by the miracle of the manna. Wow. Beautiful. God's provision. But I also think he want, I also think that he wants you to be painfully shocked by just how much these ancient people act like us today. He wants you to look in the mirror in Exodus 16 and go, yikes, that's me. That's my struggle. There, but for the grace of God, 
go I. Doubt, distortion, disobedience. Doubt, distortion, disobedience. It's all there in Exodus 16. Even those who have been redeemed, we know from this text, even those who have been redeemed by God's mercy can still struggle in this very way. But the radically encouraging promise of Christmas is that the bread of life really did come down from heaven. Amen? That is the good news of Christmas. That is the gospel of this holiday, right? That the bread of life really did come down from heaven. What does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for those who regularly struggle with doubt and distortion and disobedience? It means miraculous provision for even our deepest need. Walk out of here with that today. God, you're the God who miraculous, miraculously provides for even our deepest need. That will fill you with joy as you go. Think about your deepest need. God wants to provide for you. And that provision flows from the cross of Christ as we see in this passage. On that cross, the one who had been tested by God in the desert and passed. The one who never grumbled or complained, not even once. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life died for your doubt, distortions, and disobedience. That's the good news of Christmas. That means when we trust that he is miraculous provision for even our deepest needs, we can walk every day by faith in light of that provision. Feeding on the bread of life. So this Christmas, though you might appreciate how a present that you received this morning from a friend or a family member, how it meets a pressing need that you have, right? Oh, this was so dirty. I needed this little robot vacuum. Whoa, man. Awesome. (laughs) Whatever. You fill in the blank there. What your need is. If that happened, wonderful. But please remember, there is no true need that God does not know and that God will not meet for those he has redeemed. If you belong to him, there is no true need in your life he does not know and that he will not meet for you. Do you believe that this morning? Right? You think, Pastor, things are getting hard. True. Think about the Hebrews, hunger pangs in the desert, stumbling, struggling, asking themselves about what was happening, but then giving into the temptation to grumble and doubt that the God who freed them would be the God who would feed them as well. Even in the hardest times when we might be tempted in these same ways, tempted to complain about our condition, tempted to look back longingly on our days in the flesh, when we might be tempted to choose worldly solutions, even in the hardest times, the promise of Christmas is miraculous provision for even our deepest needs. So I invite you, take a minute now, take a minute And talk with God about your need and trust him this morning to meet that need. Amen.
Trust him to meet that need. Consider in closing the invitation of Psalm 34, verse 8. Take a look in light of God's Christmas bread. Here's the invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's focus on him this morning without distraction. Let's think about and celebrate God's Christmas bread. Take a few minutes and talk with him about the needs that you have and how he wants to provide for you in light of his provision of the bread of life.